Oh, Jesus, thank you for being faithful. Uh, Faithful in your calling as the son of God, to be tempted and tried, to face your great enemy, Satan himself, and to withstand the full force of his attacks and to emerge victorious. Thank you that you did that not just so you would be the victorious king, but also that you might redeem those who have failed in their tempting, uh, their temptations and their tests. Uh, Jesus, uh, would you open our ears and our hearts so that we might be ready to face our moment of temptation with your help and your grace. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. I choose Turkish delight, your majesty. So said Edmund. Uh, Of the Pevensey children, he was undoubtedly the black sheep, uh, the one who was always on the outside, always getting blamed for everything, never the first chosen for anything. And at this point, he was particularly vulnerable. They had a falling out of sorts among the siblings. So when he found himself in this magical world and stumbled upon someone who had a regal heir to herself, he was ripe for the picking. I mean, after all, she wanted to know about him. She even asked questions about his life, seemed very interested in his family. And she was even offering him any food he wanted in as much quantity as he could stand. All he had to do was ask it. So he chose Turkish delight. What Edmund did not know, of course, is that this magical food produced by the white witch, Queen of Narnia, was in fact cursed. No matter how much of it he ate, his appetite would never be satisfied. And in fact, he would, be become, he would become enslaved to this witch, the more of it he ate. Edmund's fate teaches us something of temptation. C.S. Lewis understood it well. Uh, uh, as the Apostle Paul describes it, something that is common to mankind. All of us are tempted in what, to one degree or another. Certainly it changes as we grow, and yet none of us outgrow the reality of it. Uh, Temptation faces us with our bodily urges, the pride of our hearts, the lust for power and to feel secure. And in those temptations, we have the possibility of doing truly awful things, things that would ruin our reputations, destroy careers, even split apart families. Uh, Even this week, uh, headlines were made when a very high-level executives of a media company ended up losing uh, its position because of an indiscretion that broke company policy. Giving up to temptation cost a career in that case. Now, my observation as a pastor is that very often Christians are more discouraged about temptation than non-Christians. Many Christians assume that when they come to Christ, and they are freed from the bondage of sin, that that means their days of being tempted are done. And so it's a very discouraging reality when they find out they are tempted even more strenuously than they were before they were Christians. For that reason, we need to know how to enter into the battle against temptation, to overcome temptation when it comes to us from our own flesh, our own hearts, and especially when it comes from our enemy, Satan himself. 
our uh, narrative in front of us shows us Jesus being tempted and tried. And as we watch him in his struggle against Satan, we will learn this glorious truth. That Jesus overcame temptation to redeem those overcome by it. That Jesus overcame temptation to redeem those of us who have been overcome by it. Uh, the passage is structured around three temptations that Jesus faces, and so that we'll move through it in that way, along with a fourth section at the end for some application. First, verses one through four, the first temptation, tempted by provision. Now, remember where we are in Luke's gospel. Uh, last week, we heard the genealogy of Jesus, which showed that he was a true human, a descendant of Adam. If you remember that week before that, the passage before it, Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist, and a, a number of things had happened proving that he was, in fact, the son of God, the heir of Israel's kingship. Um, when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down upon him in a visible form like a dove, and then there was this booming voice that came from heaven. The father himself declared, this is my beloved son, and you am I well pleased. Uh, you might think that this means Jesus is ready for his ministry. He's 30 years old, that's the right age to be a priest. Uh, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's declared to be the son of God. And yet there's one more step he needs to take first. He needs to be tempted and tried. Uh, we see even while the water is still glistening on his body from his baptism, he is filled by the Spirit and he's driven out into the wilderness. That must have been quite a sight to see. Uh, he goes out there and for 40 days, he is fasting and he is tempted and he is facing off with the great enemy of God and his people, the ancient evil, Satan himself. Now, already we are meant to sense a call back to that first set of humans, Adam and Eve. Uh, remember, Adam, he was tempted by Satan and he failed. Uh, he ate of the forbidden fruit and as a result of his disobedience, he was cursed. All of the world was cursed and all of his descendants were cursed as, uh, as a result. Well, it's almost as if Jesus is going back retracing Adam's steps. Only the deck is stacked against Jesus. Uh, remember, Adam, he faced off against Satan in the form of a serpent. We're not told what form Satan was in. He might have even just been talking to Jesus in his head. We don't know. But Adam did this while he was in a secure, lush, peaceful garden. Uh, Jesus is going to face off against Satan out in the middle of the wilderness, fill with dangers and beasts. Uh, Adam was tempted with a helpmate by his side, Eve. Jesus is going to face Satan all by himself, mano a mano. Uh, Adam faced Satan on a full stomach with as much food as he could ever want to eat, ripe for the picking all around him. And yet Jesus will face Satan famished after 40 days of fasting. Uh, it, it is the, the most difficult scenario you could imagine that Jesus chooses to have his first battle with the great evil himself, Satan. Now realize that what Jesus 
in this scenario is truly vulnerable. Uh, Luke, in what can only be described as a grand understatement, he, he says that he fasted for 40 days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Uh, you don't say, Luke, yeah, 40 days of fasting will, will make you pretty hungry. Um, a few years back, my wife saw this viral video and decided to give my son, Theo, a little test. Uh, Theo was about two and a half years old or so. She got a set of, uh, her phone set up to record a video of the dining room table, sat Theo down, and put a pile of candy right in front of him. And she said, all right, Theo, here's the deal. You can have this whole pile of candy, but you can't touch it until I come back from going to the bathroom. If you don't touch it when I come back, the whole pile of candy is yours. You understand me? Yes, I understand you. Okay. She walked out of the room. Well, at first, Theo tried not to look at the pile, just looking anywhere else. Then he got down to look at it at eye level. And then to try and pass the time, he started strumming his fingers. And it, I'm sure this must have felt like the longest 30 seconds in his two and a half year old life. But he did it. I was so proud of him. Uh, Precious came back and as soon as he saw her come back, he said, I didn't touch it. I didn't touch it. Can I eat the candy now? I said, yes, you go ahead, eat the candy. Uh, you know how difficult it is for a child not to eat sweets right in front of them. Uh, even adults, if you've ever fasted any length of time, it's hard. It's hard to go without eating when your body is telling you the very real good desire for food is there. People who have fasted for extreme lengths of time, like 40 days, say that there's a period where you actually lose all hunger, kind of a euphoric feeling. But at the end of it, the, the ravishing hunger comes back and is so powerful that you actually start hallucinating about food. After 40 days, Jesus is stretching the limits of what the human body can take. His frame is frail and famished. He is weak. At the weakest he'll ever be. And that's precisely when the serpent strikes at his stomach. Satan knows an opening when he sees it. In verse 3, we see what he does. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus, I know you're hungry. You're the son of God. You have this ability to do all sorts of things. You could surely turn this rock into a nice, warm, satisfying loaf of bread. Now to be sure, Jesus does have the power and even, you might say, the right to do so. Later on, he will feed 5,000 people using his uh, ability to do the miraculous. And yet, as with always, the, the devil's in the details, isn't it? Uh, Satan is subtle in the way he attacks. Uh, he is trying to get Jesus to do something. Uh, there's another callback here. This time, not to Adam, but to Israel. Uh, you remember what happened when God led the Israelites out from the slavery of Egypt uh, in the Exodus? Uh, they get on the other side of the Red Sea and they're able to serve God. And you would think from there forward, they're going to trust him in everything, right? But what happens? Uh, very quickly, their stomachs start grumbling. And then their hearts and their mouths start grumbling also. 
Uh, they start saying, why did you bring us out here to the desert to die? We would have been better off staying in Egypt. At least there we had something to eat. There's an attack of the stomach that goes to the very heart of, who are you really? Does God really love you? Has he really chosen you? Does he really have good designs for your life? Uh, notice Satan framed this in such a way to question Jesus' identity. If you are the son, then do this. Is this the way a good father treats a beloved son, Jesus? Uh, surely if you really were the son, then God wouldn't mind if you had something to eat. Well, that's the temptation Jesus is facing. But Jesus is able to see through the lies of the enemy, he's able to see the heart. Uh, he knows how Israel failed, and he knows what Satan is up to. And he responds with a quote from Deuteronomy 8. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now at one level, Jesus is saying at least as much as, as my bodily impulses are not my destiny. Uh, the things I want and feel a pull to are not my master. There are things more important in life than even my urges. At one level, he's saying that. And yet there's a second part to that quotation that I think fills in what Jesus is thinking even more. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Uh, what do you need even more than your body needs food? You need to believe what God says is true. Uh, you need to feast on God's word. Even if your frame is famished, you need what God says to be in your heart, in your soul, in your mind. Uh, Jesus knows this. And as we'll see him do two more times after this, he uses the very word of God, the sword of the spirit, to parry the attack of that ancient evil, the devil. Satan's first line of attack doesn't work, so crafty serpent that he is, he tries something else. Second temptation, verses five through eight, tempted by power. You've undoubtedly heard the famous saying from Lord Acton, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, you don't have to look hard to find examples of people who do awful things, given to all sorts of temptations, to get power or to keep it. Another Christian fantasy author, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, imagines this well in The Lord of the Rings, in The Ring of Power. Uh, everyone who comes across the Ring of Power, of the elves and men and dwarves, they, they feel this pull, this temptation. Uh, they imagine themselves taking it and using that power to conquer Middle Earth, becoming the unquestioned ruler. And yet, for each and every person that dares to pick it up, there is this horrible consequence. It leads to their undoing. Uh, there's only one type of being in Middle Earth that are able to resist the temptation of the ring's power, the hobbits. Uh, the hobbits that love living in holes in the ground and have no desire to rule over anyone. They care nothing for power. The hobbits are almost immune to the ring's tempting power. Tolkien captures what the human heart has fallen prey to so often, the desire to be powerful, 
to have prestige, to have everyone look up to you. Satan takes Jesus in verse 9, I'm sorry, in verse 5, uh, he takes him up to a high place so he could see all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. We're not told where it was exactly. I think it's likely a vision because there was no mountain high enough to see the whole world at once. He brings him up there and he sees a vision of all the princes, all the kings, all the castles and flags. The, the very glory of mankind is laid out in front of Jesus. And then the devil makes an offer. He tells him, all this can be yours. Uh, you can have unquestioned rulership over it all. And in fact, it's mine to give. So you know this is a true offer. Uh, many people have asked the question, does Satan actually have the power to do what he's telling Jesus? After all, he's a liar. Well, I think that in some sense, yes. Uh, Satan has had a certain authority since the garden. He's called the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air. There is uh, some level of authority given to Satan and his minions, the powers and principalities to govern the nations and direct world events. I think he could offer Jesus some sort of earthly power, only it's only half true. Because Satan's power is limited. He is not the true king sovereign no, that is God in heaven who places limits on what Satan can do. So what is it that Satan is offering Jesus in this moment? Oh, it helps us to come to that conclusion when we see the catch. Devil in the details again. Jesus can have this, but in order to do this, he must worship Satan. Uh, he must just do a small thing. Just bend the knee. Lower your head. A small physical act with the gigantic consequences of destroying the whole plan of redemption, of rupturing the very relationship between the Father and the Son, and of guaranteeing that every single one of us would be lost forever. Uh, in essence, Jesus is being offered the whole world. The price is just his soul and every human soul that's ever existed. Well, how is it that Jesus would find this offer tempting. I mean, think of it for a second. He knows his Bible better than anybody. Uh, Jesus knows that Psalm 2 says, ask of me and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. One day he's going to own the whole world. So why would he even consider what the devil is saying here? Well, again, I think that there is a subtle nature to the trap that Satan has set. He's not just offering Jesus power. He's offering him power without pain. Uh, he's not just offering Jesus majesty. He's offering him majesty without misery. He's offering Jesus a crown without having to go to the cross. Uh, Satan is offering Jesus the end point of his purpose in this world, to, to be ruler over all, but without the agony of Calvary, without sweating drops of blood, without having to say, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, Satan is offering him exaltation without any of the misery and suffering and humiliation that will come as Jesus takes the long road to the cross. 
Jesus thankfully sees through the trap of the devil and once again uses the very word of God to fend him off. In verse 8, he answered, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. There's only one who deserves my allegiance the Father. Uh, I am the Son, uh, He is the Father. And if the Father tells me that I must suffer, uh, that I must wait to one day be lifted up in glory, then I will endure it because not my will, but yours be done. Jesus fends off the second temptation. I have to think at this point, Satan's getting desperate. His tactics have worked before. All the Israelite kings that came before Jesus and Adam himself had all given in by this point. So Satan grasps for what he can get. He tries to take Jesus' own weapon and use it against him, the very word of God. The third and final temptation in verses 9 through 13, Jesus is tempted by protection. Verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. So he took him to a point at the temple, likely the one over, uh, overhanging the Kidron Valley. Uh, we know from Josephus that if you stood at that point, it was about a 500 foot drop to the bottom of the ravine underneath. So high that people would get dizzy looking over the side. Uh, Satan takes him up to that high point and tells him, jump. Now that doesn't sound all that tempting to me on the surface, right? Well, why is a base jump without a rope or a parachute something that Jesus might be tempted to? Well, Satan gives him a reason to do it. He makes a biblical argument for why Jesus should take the plunge. In verses 10 and 11, he quotes twice from Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now you may be surprised and think, well, Satan's a liar. So surely he has misquoted those verses or made them up. But if you go back to Psalm 91, he gets those two verses right. He, he quotes them. Uh, he, he seems to have a sort of devilish logic to what he is telling Jesus. I mean, it's promised here. There's protection for God's people. That promise is especially for God's Messiah. And that protection is said to come in the form of protecting you from harming your feet, from hitting rocks. It seems like that would imply that the angels would do what Satan is implying they will. All it takes is a tiny twist of scripture to get it to mean something totally different than what it was intended to mean in the first place. Uh, Dr. D.A. Carson likes to say, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Uh, that's a way of saying it's a really bad idea to just take one or two verses and try and run with them and without understanding how it fits into the whole. Uh, one example of this someone told me about recently um, there are Christian bookstores and places that sell mugs that have printed on them Luke 4, 7, which we just read. They say, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you everything. Do you remember who said those words? Yeah, it matters. Context makes a big difference. 
Now surely Jesus is more deft with the sword of the spirit than anyone. He would sniff out a ruse before any of us would. Uh, it was pointed out to me that he very likely knew that Satan actually only quoted two verses out of a three-verse stanza in Psalm 91. And verse 13 is worth our attention. Uh, Psalm 91, verse 13. It could be on the slide, if not. Okay. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Hmm. I wonder why the serpent, Satan, might not quote verse 13 to Jesus in this moment. Conveniently left that out, didn't he? But once again, there's another layer even beyond that basic leaving out a verse. Satan challenged Jesus a second time, if you are the son of God. What Satan is really putting in front of Jesus here is the temptation of proof. Uh, Jesus, you have been told you are the son. God claims that you are the Messiah and he loves you and he'll provide for you. Why do you have to live in doubt about it? Uh, why not just force God's hand and prove it once and for all? Jump off the roof, Jesus. The proof will be right there in the pudding. You will know for sure with those angelic hands holding you up by the armpits. There will be no more doubt for you to left, be left with. No more waiting. No more living with the agony of a life of faith. See, what Satan is offering is for Jesus to forget about that whole concept of trusting God. And instead to force God's hand in a sort of experiment so that God must reveal if what he's saying is true or not. Now, Jesus, again, is able to see behind the traps of the devil. He knows what Satan is doing, and he quotes back from Deuteronomy 6. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The Son does not dictate terms to the Father. No, the Son does everything that the Father tells him to do on the Father's timeline, and he does it with joy. Uh, Jesus will not let Satan take the word of God and end his spiritual life with it. And he won't let him cut hit the relationship between the father and the son in half. And with that, the great battle is over. The ancient evil Satan has failed in his temptations for the son Jesus. Uh, where Israel and her kings have failed and where Adam had failed all the way back at the beginning of humanity, Jesus has succeeded. He has been tried and tempted and he has overcome. But there's a very important question. What does that have to do with you and I as Christians? What does Jesus overcoming temptation and the devil have to do for our temptations? That's our fourth and final point. Is that Jesus was tempted for us. He was tempted for us. Now I think most often when this passage is preached... The emphasis of application is on how Jesus gives us a pattern to be able to fight off temptation. And that's a, a legitimate and good application. I'm going to spend a few minutes on that before I come back to, I think, a, an underused aspect of how Jesus' overcoming temptation matters for you. So first, I want to give you three ways that the pattern of Jesus fighting temptation in the devil should inform the way you face temptation. When you feel yourself tempted to cheat on your taxes 
or to yell at your kids or to look at some media you know you shouldn't look at. Three ways. First, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember the whole passage started with Jesus, in verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit, sent out by the Spirit to face Satan. Uh, realize if you are a Christian, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, without the Holy Spirit, you would be completely helpless. You would have no spiritual power. You have no ability to resist the temptation and lies of the devil. But with the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you have the resources you need with his help to be able to put off sin and flesh and yes, to even overcome temptation. Now, one of the things that uh, you need to realize as a Christian is that your relationship with the Holy Spirit needs to be kept strong. Uh, the Spirit will never completely leave you if you are a true Christian, and yet it's possible to quench the Spirit, to, if you, you might say, to put your relationship with God and the Holy Spirit in a bad place, is to sap yourself of spiritual strength. It's to make your prayers ineffectual, and yes, to open you up to temptations that surely will come at some point or the other. Uh, that's why it's so important as a regular course of your Christian life to confess sins as you are become aware of them. When you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you about something, don't push it out of your head. I know you feel guilty for a moment, but it's for your good he's doing that. He, he wants you to repent of the sin and to restore your relationship with God so you stay spiritually strong. Uh, you need to be ready to be in step with the Spirit. So when temptation comes along your way, you have the, the full spiritual power that a Christian's meant to have to resist. Second parallel with you and Jesus. Jesus had a heart full of the word of God. Uh, notice how he wielded the sword of the spirit, that is the word of God, so deftly to be able to fight off the temptations and overcome the devil. Uh, we too need to be able to do the same, only we don't have mastery of the word of God the way Jesus does. We, but with work, with effort, uh, we can become competent and we can prepare our hearts by hiding God's word within it so that we might not sin against him in our moment of temptation. Uh, if you aren't in the habit of regularly reading the Bible on your own, this is a really important reason why you need to. Uh, Bible reading in this way is like a, a prophylactic medicine, the type of medicine you take ahead of time so you don't catch something, not the type of medicine you take after the fact to ameliorate the effects. It's like the medicine I give my dog for heartworms, prevents them from getting it in the first place. So it is with God's word. As you bathe your heart and your mind in scripture, as you memorize it, as you listen to sermons like this one based on the Bible, uh, you are cultivating instincts that will protect you far more than you ever imagined. Uh, so often with temptation, we don't even know we're being tempted until the trap is sprung. And yet when God's word is within us, it is providing us with defense to combat the lies of the enemy and even our, the temptations of our own flesh, even at a subconscious level sometimes. Spend time studying God's word as Jesus did so that you'll be ready to face temptation. Uh, third, 
realize that Jesus, uh, Jesus, a point of diversion from us and Jesus. Uh, Jesus had to face temptation by himself. But you as a Christian, you will never face temptation by yourself. Uh, you are never alone in your battle against the devil and your flesh. Uh, certainly most of the time, you have other Christians to help you. If you're a member of our church, I certainly hope you have a deep enough relationship with another Christian or two that if you're feeling tempted in some way, you know you can call them or go to their house or send them an email and that they will pray for you, encourage you, and even quote verses of the Bible to help you stay strong in your battle against the flesh. But even if you don't have the, that sort of relationship, even if it's a temptation you're facing by yourself, out in the middle of nowhere, middle of the night, something you're considering that you think no one will ever know about except you and God, uh, realize at that moment you're still not alone because Jesus is living within you by the Holy Spirit in your heart. And Jesus loves to help us in the midst of our temptation. He's never put off by us asking him to give more grace and strength to fight off the things that befall us. Uh, there's a verse in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, that tells us as much. As is part of Jesus' qualification as a high priest. For because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Uh, not only does he understand what temptation's like, he doesn't have to sleep. He never gets bored or tired. Uh, he can pray on your behalf, uh, interceding as a priest in the very throne room of heaven. He can give you all the grace you need. So would you ask him for it? Would you ask Jesus to be your companion and your helper so that you too might overcome temptation? It's really important for us to know that Jesus is there to help us with temptation. But I think there's one and most important in all of this is to realize that Jesus was tempted for us as our representative. That our standing with God does not depend on whether we win this battle of temptation or whether we win enough battles of temptation compared to the ones we lose. No, our standing with God is measured completely by the fact that Jesus overcame temptation. For us. Uh, Hebrews 2 again, verses 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death who were subject to lifelong slavery. See, brothers and sisters, when Jesus was tempted and tried, he overcame the devil and all the temptations that befell him, uh, not just in this moment, but in every moment of his earthly life. All through the 30 years leading up to this point and the three odd years afterward in his ministry, all the way to that terrible cross in which he gave up his life in perfect obedience. He did that to have a perfect record of righteousness to give you a record that is 
a victor in the battle against every temptation. And he clothes you in that record of righteousness if you're in Christ. I know that as a Christian, so often you deal with shame, even great shame, after you failed in temptation. Uh, sometimes Christians even wonder if they're Christians altogether because they've stumbled and fell yet again. That's why you need this truth so badly. If you're standing in, with God, it doesn't hang based on your overcoming temptation, but on Jesus' having overcome temptation for you. By his spirit and with his grace, little by little we will see more and more victories in our battles against temptation. He'll make us more and more into his own image. And yes, that includes wielding the sword of the spirit, believing we are who God says we are, fighting off the flesh and the devil, and standing victorious, free from the bondage of sin and the temptations common to all mankind. Do you believe that's true of you, brothers and sisters? If so, it'll change the way you face your next temptation. I had a friend that had a job where he was one of the few Christians in the office. Uh, for the most part, his coworkers were respectful of that. He was glad for that fact. But it was known that he is a Christian. He lives life differently. Uh, one of the ways that different life came out is that he decided he would not go out regularly. Uh, he didn't go out at all, but the, the, at the office, they would regularly go out to a bar on Friday nights. And he decided it wouldn't be good for his Christian witness to do so. Now, this particular brother did not feel that the way that the Bible is written, that that was utterly forbidden for him. He thought that he could have an alcoholic drink, even in a bar if he wanted, and it would not be sinful. But for the sake of his conscience, and because frankly, he didn't want to put himself in a place to be tempted, he decided he wasn't going to do it. Well, over time, his coworkers noticed. And they, one particular coworker, seemed to make it his mission to get this friend to go against his conscience in this matter and come have a drink. Uh, one particular Friday night, he said, hey, come on, man, why don't you come to the bar with us? I'll even buy you the drink. My friend said, no, I don't want to do it. I'm going to go home with my family tonight. Thanks, but no thanks. He said, come on, I'll tell you what. Not only will I buy you a drink, I'll give you $500. He's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I don't want your money. I'm not going to go. He said, all right, forget it. You don't have to go to the bar. Stay here in the office, and I have a bottle of whiskey right here, one shot, and I will give you $2,000. My friend thought for a second. He's like, wow. No, that's actually a lot of money. I could do a lot of good things with that. I could use that for my kid's education. I, I could give that at church. That's a significant amount of money, and it's not a sin for me to do this. And then it all clicked into place what was happening. He said he realized that this wasn't about him drinking one little drink of alcohol, even though he was free to do that. Now, this was about his witness. Uh, this was a temptation. In this coworker's eyes, he was different as a Christian, and he was trying to see if there was a price that he could place on that difference. And if he took that money, he would, in essence, be giving up his ability to witness to this man for Christ. He decided not to take that money, not to take that shot, and he preserved his witness as a Christian.
Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know what particular temptations will befall you this week. Whatever they are, they are common to mankind. You may be aware of them, or they may be so subtle that everything seems normal until a moment when the trap is sprung. But I want you to leave with this in your heart and in your mind. Christ overcame temptation, and he did that for you. Uh, you're not a slave to your urges. It is not your destiny to do whatever feels right. You won't always struggle with the same same issues again and again, the same temptations time after time. One day you'll be free of them, and maybe, just maybe, this will be the time. So take heart, and with Christ's help, would you fight with the word of God with all your strength? And remember, the victory is already won through the one who is tested and tried, the one who is tempted to redeem those who are overcome in their temptations. And in God's providence, he has given us a way to remember what he has accomplished as we come to the Lord's table. Would you pray with me as we prepare our own hearts?